Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. Today, we're going to be talking about the recently published 2021 update to the 2019 World Scientist Warning of a Climate Emergency by Drs. William Ripple, Christopher Wolf, and colleagues. It's worth noting that in addition to the update's authors, whose expertise covers a breadth of subjects related to the health of the planet, the new publication also reports that the original warning now has an impressive 14,000 scientist signatories. Today, I'm joined by one of the update's co-authors, Dr. Jillian Gregg, who's affiliated with the Sustainability Double Degree Program and the Department of Crop and Soil Science at Oregon State University. We talked about the urgency of taking climate action, science communication, and of course, some of the science that underlies the climate emergency. It was a great discussion in which I learned a lot. And so with no further ado, let's go to the interview. Dr. Greg, thank you very much for joining me today. It's great to be here. Thanks for interviewing me. Okay, so you know, one thing I noted about you know this viewpoint and also its predecessor is um, about the language. You know, we're not talking necessarily about global warming anymore or something like climate change. Um, we're talking about a, a climate emergency. You know, what's the reasoning behind that change in terminology? As you mentioned, we used to always talk about global warming, but of course, that didn't include ocean, extreme weather events, etc. And so we changed the terminology from global warming to climate change. But then as we're talking about climate change, uh, the general public is like, well, change, you know, change up, change down. It's not clear what the direction is or whether it's bad or good change. There's no real evaluator. So then it switched to climate crisis, which got a bit closer, but it didn't invoke necessary action. So the terminology of a climate emergency indicates action is needed rapidly. And so that's why it's essential that we change our terminology to be using the term that it's a climate emergency. So this is an emergency that's something that's, you know, happening right now already. You know, I think that's, you know, one of the things that was striking to me is that we're not talking about something that, you know, we're going to start to see the effects 15 years from now. This is happening right now. Yes, there's been many extreme climate events across the world. We had the mega fires in Australia that followed a prolonged drought, which burnt approximately 18.6 million hectares of land. In November 2020, we had the Atlantic hurricane season with more than 51 billion US dollars in damages. And also in November 2020, much of Australia experienced the extreme heat wave. Then in December, we had the major wildfires in the Western United States, causing 47 direct deaths and burning nearly 4.1 million hectares. And now we here we are in, the, in this summer and we're experiencing all these massive heat waves across the globe. And there's all these attribution studies showing that it's related to anthropogenic climate change. And I want to get back to the relationship with anthropogenic climate change in particular in just a moment. But you know, I mean, one of the things that struck me was when I was trying to write a press release for your article, in the first paragraph, I wanted to tag a couple of recent climate-related catastrophes. And as I was going through the drafting process, which was pretty short, like three days, I, I found my my examples continually out of date. You know, it was we began with the you know the European flooding and uh, you know the heat wave um, you know in your neck of the woods in the Pacific Northwest, and by the time that you know we'd had a chance to share it around and, and change some wording, there was a massive flooding event in you know China, and it seems endless. But what I'm really wondering though is how well are these things linked to climate change? Because I was concerned that potentially I'm seeing a pattern that's not there. But it sounds like these things actually can be linked to anthropogenic climate change. Right. So the science of attribution of extreme events to anthropogenic changes, there are two different approaches. One is to look at the change in frequency over time and then alter that into the probability and say, 
that we've had an event that has changed from a one in a hundred probability to a one in 10 probability. So if you have a long enough record of these events, then you can use that very straightforward approach. When you don't have a long enough record, then you have to go to models. And our models, because we know what has happened since the industrial revolution, and we have the change in temperatures and the change in extreme climate events and the change in anthropogenic inputs, we have a really good understanding of what has already happened. When people question models, it's more of a question of what can happen in the future and how can we really say that? And in fact, when we look at that, we see the biggest unknown in our future is actually how much we're going to emit. But as far as the past climate events, we have really good attribution to be able to understand what has happened in the past. So you can just take those models that are already really accurate for the 1880 until present day, and you can remove the greenhouse gas emissions. And if you remove the greenhouse gas emissions, you can say, what was the probability X decades ago and what is the probability now? So that probability can give you increased probability due to greenhouse gases. Even within those models, you then have to go back and make sure that the mechanism that we're seeing now is similar to the mechanism that you see in the model. And so that the models really are performing well. So it's a whole science and it began in the 2000s. And so there's 350 different publications now that have examined different extreme events to determine if they're related to humans. And of those 350 studies, there's been 405 different events that were examined. 79% of those studies have been able to attribute the event to climate change. And there's a great site that people can go to, um, a climate brief, where they have an interactive map that summarizes all these different studies and you can separate them out into whether it was due to heat or whether it was due to hurricanes or whether it was due to flooding events, which extreme event was examined. And then it has a link even to the exact study. And it's an amazing resource. And we have to really thank them for having pulled that site together. Yeah, I think that's, you know, that sounds like a very important message to get out because the climate change denialist community has often, you know, made the argument that, oh, these things are just, you know, bizarre one-off events. It's it's mere coincidence that, you know, we've had this set of hurricanes, but are, are, we're hitting this, we're hitting the point at which we've had enough of these extreme events over, you know, a, a long enough period of time that we can now apply models and understand that, you know, this is something new. We are seeing something that was, um, you know, not part of the historical record that we would have expected to see in 1895 or something like that. And it's not just that we've had the events, but actually we've also recorded the billions of dollars that we spend each year on these different climate events. And so when you weigh, should we do something in the future, we should be weighing what is the cost of all of these events. Yeah, that's a really good point because, you know, oftentimes when we hear about the potential expense of, you know, a carbon limiting scheme or something like that, uh, it's not properly weighed against the fact that if we don't have a scheme like that, we could very well be in a position of having to you know, rebuild cities and you know, spend trillions of dollars on those types of efforts. Exactly. Okay, so one of the aspects of the article that I'm really interested in is its role in messaging. So when this podcast comes out, we'll have just had the IPCC report come out. And, you know, it seems largely in many ways focused on policymakers. But I was hoping you could talk a little bit about the role of publications such as This Viewpoint, you know, with its 14,000 scientist signatories and how that kind of plays into the communication strategy, um, you know, for getting people to acknowledge and think about the climate emergency. I think the difference is um, it's, it's essential, 
absolutely essential that we have the Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change. And they are summarizing all of the information, all the scientific information from all the countries. And there's thousands of authors involved and it's a five-year process in order to summarize all of the data that's out there and get that out to policymakers. And it's, you know, three massive volumes of information to wade through. Of course, there's the summary for policymakers that can be gone through much more quickly. But the message for Alliance of World Scientists is more of a direct message from the scientists to the people about the urgency of what's going on. I teach Intro to Climate Change at Oregon State University, and we watch The Inconvenient Truth by Al Gore, and they don't necessarily want to learn about climate change from a politician. They want to hear from the science. And whereas all of scientific information is summarized and it's put in these large volumes with a, you know their 2018 special report that really did lead to this emergency. It was their report that said, we have to reduce to 45% of the 2010 emissions by 2030 and to net zero emissions by 2050, or there's going to be massive problems. And so it was their statements that has led to this terminology of being able to call it a climate emergency. And with this Alliance of World Scientists did is, whereas people are, are used to seeing the temperature graphs and the CO2 graphs, we're saying we have a whole slew, 31 different vital signs of the planet. And we're gonna be following those vital signs through the years. And at this point, it's 2021. So it's three years since the IPCC special report came out saying we have until 2030. That's nine more years now. So every year, what are the vital signs of the planets doing? In particular, how do the vital signs look uh, given the COVID year and the rebound from the COVID year? What's, well, <laughs> I hope it's the COVID year. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, we, we certainly hope that it's not the COVID situation that lasts for, you know, uh, years on end. But, uh, you know, I, I thought that was one of the interesting points that was raised in this update of the, you know, the original viewpoint is that the COVID effect, while it, it did have some measurable effects in which, you know, transportation was limited and, you know, there were some markers that did show something, you know, by and large, it wasn't enough to move the needle on the actual expected changes that we'll see. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about how COVID played into the numbers, where it didn't play into the numbers and then how it affected the vital signs? Uh, that you reported on? Okay, well, there are three major vital signs that were affected by COVID. One was the reduction in emissions. For the first three months, we had a reduction by 17% of our global emissions. Annual, over the course of the year, that came only to a reduction in 9%. But since then, we are rebounding, and there seems to be no end in sight to our growth of emissions of fossil fuels. We also saw a reduction in the GDP, and we saw a massive reduction in airline flights. So all of those, even though they were reduced during the 2020 year, they are rebounding. We're not seeing an overall impact. But what's essential that I find is important to explain in my classes is that there's a real big difference between the emissions curve and the atmospheric concentration curve. So the atmospheric concentration curve is like this bathtub of all the CO2 that we've ever put into the air. And so just reducing the emission curve by 17% for three months and 9% over a year, you're still adding to that pool. So when you look at this atmospheric CO2 concentrations, 
you don't even see COVID. You don't see, oh, the atmospheric concentration, you know, it didn't even pause, didn't even change. But that is our ultimate goal. We need the atmospheric CO2 concentration first to flatten off, and then we need to go into drawdown and pull this atmospheric CO2 concentrations back to 350 parts per million, which is a level that has been deemed safe for humanity. Okay, so it sounds like it's a little bit like you're in a car that's going very, very fast in the wrong direction and got your foot pedal to the metal and you pull it off just a tiny little bit. Uh, you're still going really fast and you're still headed in the bad direction. You need to do more. Exactly. So we need a full on emergency brake. <laughs> right. That's essentially what we need. And the question is really how to get there. Okay, you know what? This is something I suspect a lot of others wonder, and I certainly do. But how do we actually get there? You know, uh, maybe not necessarily from a policy perspective, but, you know, for the individual, what can we do? What should we be doing? How should we be thinking about these issues? You know, aside from voting, uh, you know, what kind of things do we have at our disposal to kind of take action and not feel powerless in the face of these, you know, kind of broad and overwhelming circumstances? Okay, so our paper, of course, focuses on the national, international level policies, and I'll end with that. But since you asked the question of what people can do on a personal level, and that's maybe what people just today, what can you do to go out and make a difference? That's the visceral end result of what's going on today. And I have a long list here. Let's hear it. And the idea in this list is not that everyone has to do all of these things, but if you could just pick one of these things that you feel comfortable with, this climate emergency, it's real, it's humans, it's serious, it's time to act. And we need people from all walks of life, whether you're a scientist or whether you're a policymaker, whether you're a, an artist just trying to get the word out, whether you're uh, a business and you can run your business more sustainably. Everyone needs to speak up. And so here's my list. <laughs> we need it to be in the conversation. Everybody needs to speak up. And we need to respectfully engage counter arguments. So don't just let things slide. Oftentimes it's easiest to just listen. Everyone likes to be heard. And even if you don't respond on that day and in that conversation, it can be useful just to take notes. Like what it is that you really believe. Let me really understand. But you need to listen to people and you need to connect with them. And we need to make sure that we're refuting any climate myths that are out there. Secondly, we need to vote and we need to get everyone we know to vote. We need to support any way of voting that's fair, whether that be to change to a new uh, system with ranked choice voting or score voting, mail-in ballots so everyone gets their votes in. I would recommend if you're a marcher, march. <laughs> Go to the March for Science and the March for Climate and Earth Day. There's not a movement if people are not on the street. We need to be on the streets. The youth are out on the streets. And they have asked adults to join. When the youth asks for the adults to join, be there, support them. They cannot do it on their own. We need their enthusiasm, but we need the adults' expertise to get in and help them understand what to actually do. If you're a teacher, or even if you're not a teacher, the Al Gore climate reality training is now online. And so you don't have to have the resources to fly there. And when you leave there, you end up with a whole deck of the most up-to-date slides of what is going on. It's very accessible. Every educator should go there and have access to those data and non-educators also. Anyone can be a climate reality leader and I recommend they get up there and take the training and get access to these slides. Also, since the audience here is gonna be largely university people, 
make sure that your university and your town are doing what they can to become carbon neutral. If you want a great example, look at the Exeter University YouTube on how they're planning to become carbon neutral. They're doing an excellent job. Travel options are driving less, carpool, use zip cars, use high miles per gallon cars or electric cars, used electric cars can be a good way to go, fly less, do staycations, host virtual meetings, go solar. Solar is definitely cheaper now in the long term, even though there's a payment up front, you will save money over time. Change from natural gas to electric heat pumps and from conventional ovens and stovetops to convection. For food, buy local, eat less meat, use less packaging, and reduce consumption. Buy used goods, buy things for keeps. Minimalism is in, make a movement. Pick a couple of those and do some of them and bring your friends along and everyone needs to act. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I had one question about um, you know travel. Do, what's your take on greenhouse gas offsets for for travel? You know, I've I've seen a lot of things where you can pay you know kind of a trivial amount of money, and um, you know you're told that there, there will be a carbon offset that will you know ameliorate the effect of your flight. Do those work, or is it is it better to you know kind of limit the consumption in the first place? Well, limiting is the best, but contributing is also good. At Oregon State University, we have started a voluntary offsets program so that we contribute those to different companies that say that they're offsetting the carbon. But the ultimate goal is to have the university carbon offsets be large enough that we make our own carbon offsets program so that the carbon offsets money that is donated from university travel will go to actual OSU projects that is going to make our university carbon neutral. I think that any company or university or large entity could even start to develop their own carbon offset fund and so that when you are paying the carbon offsets it also benefits you and that will snowball that sounds like a great strategy you know one thing i'm wondering about uh, you know in, in our preparation for this one thing you mentioned was you know uh, changing how we think about the climate emergency in our minds and it, it makes me curious because you know i've, I've uh, i have kids and i've talked to them about the climate emergency and they've certainly learned a lot in their in school and stuff but one thing is, you know, I've noticed that they, they kind of have a tendency to, to despair and to feel a little bit hopeless in that kind of younger generation. Uh, you don't sound hopeless. What's the difference between those two perspectives? You know, how should we be thinking about the climate emergency and the things that we need to do? You know, we're, we're obviously we're up for a big challenge, but, you know, how should that play out in our minds? Yeah, there's a range not only within children, but within the whole population and even within scientists uh, where we should lie. We just did a uh, a survey amongst the Alliance of World Scientists, what policy decisions should we be suggesting? And we got back all these many, many emails and I was pulling through them all and summarizing. And some of them just say, let everything explode and fail. It, there's really all range. Personally, I started all of this in, in 1990. In 1990, no one was on board. And it was really clear back then so to me, the concept that this is on broadcast news, when they're talking about heat waves, they explain wavy jet streams and that's happening. And so forecasters are on board explaining climate science to the general public. The climate emergency is worldwide. It's up to 2010 as of this morning of jurisdictions that are claiming a climate emergency. It started with uh, Scotland and Wales and England, but it's got Canada and the whole UK, it's got Japan, uh, like entire nations have declared a climate emergency. 
the fact that solar and wind are now cheaper to implement from the ground than would be to build a coal-fired power plant. Of course, we're still using the fossil fuel plants because we already have the infrastructure. But if you didn't have anything to begin with, in many areas, it actually would be cheaper to start with wind and solar. So I really feel that the energy transition is underway. But I'm not so optimistic that it's going to happen if everybody's not doing something. Everyone needs to be on board and everyone needs to be keeping the conversation going in order for us to get there. But I am optimistic. I, I understand. So let's talk a little bit, though, um, you know, because it, obviously great progress has been made, um, you know, if not in reducing emissions, at least in the, you know, the the realization that that things need to change and very rapidly. Let's talk a little bit about something you mentioned earlier, which was the nine years that we have left um, before 2030 and and the targets we need to beat. You know, what are the sorts of targets we're, we're aiming for in that period of time? What will happen if we do meet them? And what will happen if we don't? Uh, you know, kind of what are we up against? That is a, an incredibly short period of time. It's, you know, um, it's two presidential terms in a little bit. It's, you know, it, it's a it's a blink of an eye. Okay, well, 45% of 2010 emissions is, is a large target in nine years. And so we need to do everything possible. Oregon just came out and they said that they're going to have 100% renewable electricity by 2040. So that's a start. California has said that they're going for 100% renewable electricity. All these claims of net zero emissions are a little bit harder to assure because a net zero emission means that you can emit the same amount that you claim that your forests are taking up. And so there's a calculation there and there can be errors. So I'm more in favor of the 100% renewable electricity, and then transfer everything off of fossil fuels onto electric and so that we're not emitting any fossil fuels. In terms of impacts, the idea is that once we pass the 450 parts per million threshold, that that's going to put us over two degrees of warming. And as soon as we reach two degrees of warming, all sorts of different tipping points are likely to be passed. The ice melt tipping points are expected to even start at 1.5 degrees Celsius warming. And we are currently at 1.1 degrees Celsius warming with a number of lag times that haven't even been met. So even if we didn't add any CO2 as of today, we still have to wait till the melting ice catches up with the heat that's already in our climate system. And because oceans take a long time to heat up and ice sheets take decades to melt, there is a lag time in where equilibrium will fall with the current CO2 concentrations. So let's talk about, you know, just one tipping point, you know, for an ex- just to give us an example of what those kind of, you know, are in this scenario. So what is the, uh, you know, the ice melting tipping point and, and what does that mean, um, you know, if one of those is met and, and exceeded? Okay, so the Greenland ice sheet a tipping point is the idea that once we reach 1.5 degrees Celsius, if all of the ice on Greenland melts and it's all gone, that that would equate to 20 feet of sea level rise. And now the group at Princeton has a visualization website where you can go and say, if we get X amount of sea level rise, how will that affect my particular city or my particular country? And it's an amazing resource that you can go to get a real visualization of what, it, what does it mean when 20 feet of sea level rise? But 
overall, it means a lot of movement of people, mass migrations. And we know we already have these massive border issues. And so if we have entire countries that are going to be submerged under the sea and they've all got to migrate to other countries, we're going to have massive political upheaval. It's really just unprecedented. Yeah, I mean, that is a scary number. And, you know, um, I think one of the numbers you mentioned is that uh, 2 billion people would be displaced by, you know, a sea level change of that, you know, order of magnitude. And myself living in Norfolk, Virginia, I would be one of them. And so it just seems like that's a level of upheaval that is, you know, almost completely unprecedented and it's almost hard to digest. Yeah, and the climate justice issue as part of it, this entire island nations that will be submerged under the sea when they contributed essentially nothing to emissions based on the emissions that these countries like the United States have emitted all of the CO2 and that's going to submerge entire island nations. Very devastating. Yeah, it does seem as though, you know, many of the people who are, you know, least able to deal with these situations and also least responsible for them in the first place are going to be those who are going to be dealt the worst hand as a result of them. Um, You know, whether that be island nations that are going to be submerged or, you know, those who live in areas, um, you know, where it's going to become incredibly hot and they don't have access to indoor temperature control. Um, what kinds of things are being done to address that situation and, you know, kind of affect some of those climate justice issues and bring it into the fore as something that needs to be dealt with? That is part of the Paris Agreement, that uh, wealthier nations should be contributing to the Green Climate Fund. And it's essential that we follow that aspect of the Paris Agreement now that the United States is back in it. All the pledges that each country makes for the Paris Agreement are determined within the own country. And so I urge people as we hear the conversation begin of what is the United States contribution going to be to the Green Climate Fund, that we keep in mind our responsibility in having changed the face of the globe. Yeah, I think that's a very good point and, I, and something that I hope you know our listeners will um, also be able to focus on. Let's talk for a moment about uh, about ecosystems. We've been talking so far about you know these processes happening at a global scale, and we've talked a lot about the effects on humans. But you know, um, what are the you know what kinds of effects that we're seeing on ecosystems, and, and also how can the restoration of ecosystems um, you know help ameliorate some of these challenges that we're facing? Okay, so the essential thing I know. Your audience is well informed, but the essential thing to get out to the public is that the main chemical equation to be able to bring CO2 out of the air is photosynthesis, right? That's what plants do. Plants actually grow out of thin air. Initially, we didn't even know about photosynthesis. People thought, oh, you plant a seed, you put it in the soil, it grows. It must be plants are growing from the soil. But then they did an experiment and you dry out the soil and you weigh it and then you put a seed in and you water it, you let it grow for a few years, you shake off the soil and you dry out the soil again and you weigh it and the soil weighs a very small fraction less and you've got this ginormous plant. Wow, so maybe trees grow out of thin air, you know, but it wasn't until we had radioactive carbon and radioactive CO2 that we could feed to plants and see that it would come in one leaf and go to other parts of the plant that we learned about photosynthesis. And it's this essential fundamental uh, uh, reaction that is already in place in all plants, 
and all algae and in the ocean, the phytoplankton, uh, the algae that are living in combination with the coral, they're all bringing in that CO2 that we put into the air. So all the CO2 that we emit into the air, approximately half of it is taken up by ecosystems. Approximately 25% goes into land plants, approximately 25% dissolves into the ocean, of course, therefore making it more acidic in the ocean, but ultimately it's taken up by the phytoplankton and the algae and goes through the ocean food web. So if our ocean food web fails and we are making the ocean so acidic by putting this high CO2 into the atmosphere that we are killing off coral reefs and killing off phytoplankton so they're not able to take the CO2 in from the atmosphere, then that is only going to magnify the CO2 problem. And the same with the deforestation of the Amazon rainforest, forests throughout the globe, all plants really. So all plants are taking the CO2 in from the atmosphere. The amazing thing about forests is that they're storing them in the tree trunks. And so the problem with deforestation is not only that we're removing a way of saving ourselves by taking the CO2 out of the air, but then oftentimes it's slash and burn. And so we're burning the tree trunks. So we're putting that massive amount of CO2 into the air, the compounding the elevated CO2 problem. So our natural ecosystems, not only are they a source of biodiversity where those could have a very important medical resources for developing medicines in the future, just the joy of the amazing creatures that we have on our earth, but they are also saving us from our climate disaster. So one of three things that we propose in the paper, first we propose that there needs to be a global carbon price. If individual countries have a carbon price, then everyone's just going to go buy items from the country that doesn't have it. So we would like to encourage a global carbon price. We'd like to encourage the gradual decline leading to a ban of fossil fuel emissions, but also to have these climate reserves, both on land in the ocean, where we have natural reserves that are preserving the biodiversity and the carbon sequestration capability of our ecosystems. And one more final note on that is they are also part of this tipping point. We always say that these ecosystems are bringing in half of all of our CO2. At some temperature, none of the ecosystems are gonna be bringing in any of the CO2 because if there's no organisms alive, they're not pulling it in. That's to go to the extreme end. And so then in that case, global warming would be happening twice as fast. Of course, we wouldn't be here to be able to admit at that point. Of course, yeah. So, I mean, that that sounds like a, a, a big challenge. So, we definitely need to preserve the ecosystems, and I, and I think that fifty percent figure is an interesting one because you know we always uh, you know talk about the potential for you know various CO two removal engineering type solutions and things like that. But it sounds like we've already got a mechanism that's presently removing fifty percent of the carbon from the atmosphere. Exactly. Yes, there is the Elon Musk challenge for people to build whatever system it is to pull gigatons of carbon out of the atmosphere. And I am anticipating that those are going to be utilizing some natural ecosystems. Yeah, that'll be really interesting to see. Um, so it sounds on the whole as though, you know, we have some very big challenges ahead of us that need to be addressed very, very quickly. But we have at least some of the tools um, and the knowledge that we need in order to get that done. Uh, Dr. Greg, thank you very much for joining me on the show today. Okay, thank you. 
And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you, and talk to you next time.